Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Drs. Red Lahern and Drs. Steve Nadeau. They're here to discuss their recent paper highlighting some of the criticisms in the DEA that will be listed on the Federal Register. Now normally I would introduce the paper and provide a nice introduction, but for today I think that honor should go to Dr. Lahern. And with that, I'd like Dr. Lahern to go ahead, introduce his paper, and then begin the discussion. Well, how do you do, folks? Uh, I'll start with, with introducing myself and Dr. Nato, or he can introduce himself. I am a non-clinician uh, subject matter expert on public policy for the uh, regulation of prescription opioid pain relievers and of clinicians who employ them in um, treating uh, chronic long-term uh, severe pain. I've been at this about 26 years, maybe 27 by now. I have about 200 or so publications or plus in various places, some of them with uh, Dr. Nadeau um, in peer-reviewed and uh, general, um, if you will, broadcast or um, popular media. So I've been around a long time. I've had a lot of uh, uh, peer review. Um, and we're going to talk today a little bit about a very um, key paper that has tremendous implications in several places, uh, which we have uh, uh, written up for Dr. Joshi. Um, I'm Richard Red, uh, so-called Red Lawhorn, believe it or not, my hair used to be. Uh, long before I got to be active as an advocate. Um, I am a technically trained but non-clinician uh, subject matter expert in public policy for the prescription of opioid pain relievers and the regulation of both pain relievers and clinicians who employ them. I have about 200 plus uh, published papers authored or co-authored, some of them co-authored with Dr. Nato. Um, in a variety of both peer-reviewed and uh, popular mass media. So I've been around a long time. I've been looked at a long time by various and sundry um, editors and peer reviewers. And today we're going to talk about something that's a little bit complicated, but that I think we can probably contribute significantly, Dr. Nato and I. And with that, let me turn this over to Dr. Nato and have him introduce himself. I'm a professor of neurology at the University of Florida College of Medicine. I've been in practice for over 40 years. I've been in patients with chronic pain. I've been working clinical aspects of managing pain. And since 2016, I've been in the clinical deeply. Um, and it involves the 
Why don't you discuss the paper and summarize it as succinctly as possible? I know there's a lot of points in there, but if you wouldn't mind perhaps going point by point and highlighting key things in the paper that are worth noting. Okay. Um, let me see if I've got, got the right paper open here. I'll get there eventually. Well, you might know it. Well, all right. I, let's see what the heck happened here. You may have to do a little bit of removing from the recording before we go forward with it, but I'll get there in just a minute. Yeah, okay. The paper, as we have put it together, as, as Dr. Nato and I have, have uh, constructed it, is titled, Understanding Contributors to U.S. Drug-Related Mortality. And the paper is written very much out of an, a sense of immediate um, I will say crisis because it is an immediate crisis in both clinical communities and pain patient communities because there's been an awful lot written in public press about claimed relationships between prescribing opioids and the so-called prescription opioid crisis or sometimes opioid epidemic that is so widely used in media these days. But there's very conclusive proof based on data that's collected by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that for over 10 years there's been no relationship at all between rates of opioid prescribing and either hospitalizations for opioid toxicity or deaths where a prescription opioid was one of the contributing factors. And there's, an, there's a very well done um, study published in a peer-reviewed journal. The journal is Frontiers in Pain, in Pain Research. The authors of that one are respectively Larry Aubrey and B. Thomas Carr. That was in, Ju in June of last year. There's also an older paper that is really what we might call seminal because it speaks to the entire sweep of drug-related, and I'm, by that I mean all drug-related opioid, excuse me, drug-related, including opioids, mortality for the last 30 years, actually since 1980, the last 45 years, very nearly. And that paper is one that we, that we concentrated on in the article that will be published on Daily Remedy. Uh, if we might, at this point, I'd like to bring up a key uh, chart from that paper so that we can get a look at what the data really are with regard to the contributing factors in drug-related mortality. Jay, can you bring that up for us? Okay, really good. Uh, the paper and, the, and this uh, chart is by a group of authors headed by Hauri Jalal, and I hope I'm doing his name justice. 
It was published in the prestigious journal Science in uh, 20, I believe 2018. And the title of the paper was, um, let's see that one, I need to get out of here too, sorry. I'll get the uh, reference for that. The title of the paper was Changing Dynamics of the Drug Overdose Epidemic in the United States from 1979 through, through 2016. And basically, they downloaded all of the data from CDC and from the National Cause of Death uh, database year by year throughout that period where the primary cause of death was registered as one of eight drug or drug-related factors. And that's the chart on the left that we're seeing now. I'd like to briefly get, give you a, a few thoughts about that chart. Uh, for instance, let's take a very representative year, which is uh, 2010. It's representative in the sense that there's some very key events that happened in that year. The least um, contributing factor, the lowest number of deaths that could be attributed as primarily uh, attributable to um, the uh, to one drug category is um, oh boy, I've got to get my color straight here. Sorry, is uh, boy. In that year, 2010, it would have been methamphetamine. You go up on the chart, on that's to say the, the left side of the chart, if you go upward, you see that methamphetamine contributed about 0.5 deaths per 100,000 US population. Way up on top in that year was um, prescription opioids that contributed about 2.6 or so, 2.7 or so per 100,000. And in between, you see uh, heroin, methadone, excuse me, methadone, synthetic opioids other than methadone, cocaine, unspecified narcotics, and unspecified drugs. That unspecified is important because it establishes a range of uncertainty in whether or not the, diag the uh, attribution of death is accurate. Uh, there is no current standard that applies throughout the United States for uh, either medical examiners or uh, coroners to assign the primary cause of death in drug-related deaths. And in many cases, because there are multiple uh, factors playing in a, in a given mortality, uh, we see that there's some possibility for attributing to more than one cause. So under the rules that generally are apply, doctor, the uh, medical examiners assign their best understanding of, of what was the primary factor in the death, even though there may have been other factors. So what these, they add directly to one another, and that shows up on the right side of the, of the chart here. And in the right side of the chart, what we see is an exponential curve that is almost smooth from 1980 to 2016. And it continues to accelerate beyond 2016 in the data that CDC has reported since. 
there are multiple causes contributing, but there are some very key understandings here that um, Jalal at, at, at all, if you will, Jalal and his colleagues have pointed out. One of them is that in any given year, the uncertainties in the estimate are about 20 to 25 percent of all deaths. So those are a little bit uncertain. That's kind of a, if you will, that's a, a range of possibilities where things probably don't quite align in these various curves on the left side, or they don't quite attribute cleanly in the, the curves on the left side. The other thing that comes up from this is that prescription drugs throughout this period have never comprised more than about 25% or so of attributable causes for, for an, an, a drug-related death of any kind. And even during the period of the, um, the pill mills that we, we so often hear discussed in, in literature, during that period prior to 2010, the contribution that prescription opioids made that we knew that we knew about that, that can be traced as primary causes of death has never really exceeded 25 to 30 percent. And after 2016, we know from other sources that the fraction of deaths contributed by opioids has has dropped. And the reason it's dropped is there's so many more deaths from other causes. We also know from the from the, the chart here that in 2010, several very unhappy things happened. And one of them was that oxycodone was reformulated to reduce its abuse potential. And when it was reformulated, an awful lot of prescriptions of oxycodone uh, were dropped out of the system and heroin took off on a rocket. Heroin related deaths may very well have accelerated precisely because of the unavailability of formerly diverted uh, prescription pharmaceuticals, which were basically safe, street markets became much more lethal. When you get all the way out to 2016, you discover that the synthetic opioids other than, than um, methadone, which are primarily comprised of fentanyl, go almost off the chart. They, they, they are on an almost vertical slope. And what's happening there is that fentanyl has penetrated U.S. street markets and is being sold in counterfeit pills that are being basically uh, distributed to addicts and to uh, non-medical users. Now there's another aspect of this chart that's very important and it's very important in our paper. Not only does the chart tell us that prescription opioids basically have never dominated opioid related mortality, but where this chart appeared is very important. It was first discovered and, and uh, referred to me by Larry Aubrey, who's also been doing work in statistics here. And he found it in a conference that was published in 2019 by the Drug Diversion Division of the USDEA. That is really seminal. It's fundamental to this issue because what this chart and the conference proceedings tell us is that the DEA has known for at least the, four, the last four years that prescribing 
by clinicians to their patients has not been the dominating factor in our drug crisis. Not only do they know that that was true, they have continued to prosecute, and in my view, maliciously persecute doctors out of practice. And any doctor these days who is continuing to prescribe opioids, even though they are, the, in many cases, for many people, the most effective of all of the available therapies, anyone who is doing that prescribing these days is at risk. But this chart is a smoking gun that the DEA knows that they shouldn't be at risk, and they are persecuting these people anyway. If there was ever a chart that was an absolute smoking gun and a basis for challenging drug convictions, that's to say, excuse me, challenging convictions of clinicians by the DEA, this chart is it. Because this chart in the last four years tells us the DEA knows better than to blame uh, clinicians for the opioid crisis, but they're doing it anyway. So with that in mind, let's uh, open up the discussion and have Jay take over again. And Steve, would you like to add to this, please? I'd just like to emphasize a couple of points, Brad. Uh, I'm going to focus exclusively on the blue line, the prescription opioids line. Uh, you can see that it's a steep rise in its curve until about 2011. Um, we now know very clearly these diversions are still coming. It which happened all over the country, but particularly in the state of Florida, in collaboration with all of the major drug distribution companies who are making billions of dollars in this pill mill trade. Prescription opioid deaths. 
to the point that Steve just made. Basically, a position that I've taken in other papers and that we have given considerable support to, even if it wasn't stated exactly that way in journal uh, articles we published, there is evidence that the, the nature of these contributors was known to the people who wrote the updated um, CDC guidelines on prescription of opioids and published them in November of last year. It was known to them, but they ignored it. And there are a number of other problems which we don't need to get into in this particular podcast. But what, what we, but what Dr. Nato and I are saying basically, and the the point, if you will, the, the foot stopping point that really is the bottom line in in the short paper that you'll be publishing on Daily Remedy is that the CDC has fundamentally misdirected the practice of pain medicine in this country by using coercive means that are not founded on appropriate science and that are significantly contradicted by um, established science in many areas. Those guidelines have to go wherever stupid things die. If you'll pardon the way I put this, I'm being a little vernacular. But bottom line is both the VA, the CDC guidelines and the VA guidelines are based on junk science and assertions that don't prove, that don't stand up if you give them the least examination from the standpoint of what the data looks like. The chart that you have up now, Jay, is what the data looks like. We have a real drug crisis in America, but it wasn't produced by doctors. And it isn't being sustained by doctors. The number one crisis in America is street drugs, where the, the thing that makes them lethal 
isn't supply, it is demand. And there's an abundant literature in that demonstrates that the demand is created not by doctors, but by the conditions in which people live. The desperation and anxiety that is generated by what we call the social determinants of health. Things like 50 years of real wage stagnation and the hollowing out of both inner city and rural communities, the loss of family, and the increasing, perhaps the increasing political dissension that we experience in this country. We have misdirected resources for a great long time. And we're going to, if we want to solve the drug problem, quote, quote, we have to define it properly. And that means we have to stop blaming doctors for something they didn't do. Well said. Let me take this now to a higher level to maybe draw some key points and extrapolate out some general concepts for the listening audience. First off, I want to thank you both for your in-depth analysis on the graphs. I think it's very important that people start to study these in the detail that it requires. I want to take a higher level approach and focus on three concepts. One is the uncertainty and the percentage of uncertainty that was cited. The second is the correlation and causation argument. And the third is the attribution error. When I reviewed your paper and I'm reviewing your analysis just now, I see that there's different sources of error that each have its own implication. And I want to understand maybe less so quantitatively and maybe at a broader, higher level, what is the significance of data having this much uncertainty in it? And how does that lead to sources of error like correlation versus causation and attribution error? And Red, if you'd like to begin first. Yeah, I'll do that. If we took the, if we properly labeled the uncertainty in the estimate, uh, and we looked at the right side of this chart, what we would see is not lines with points. We would see sort of fuzzy worms that move in a general direction with error bounds, upper and lower. For instance, let's say we look at prescription drugs in 2011, and it says there's a mortality rate of about three deaths per 100,000. If we were able to appropriately define the error bounds, what we would see is a band in that year that probably runs from somewhere around four deaths per 100,000 to somewhere as long as two and a half deaths per 100,000. It would be a band because a lot of the assigned causes as the primary cause of prescription drugs, excuse me, be, if the assigned causes have uncertainty in them, all of these uh, lines would be, would be somewhat fuzzy worms making their way across the, uh, the chart. Now, likewise, we have to realize, and, and Dr. Nato spoke to this very, you know, just a moment ago, many kind of times what happens is that a, um, a county examiner, and in a lot of ca uh, uh, counties, the county examiner may not even have a medical degree. A lot of, of the county examiners have very limited resources. And when they assign a primary cause of death, it's after they have looked to see, was there an existing prescription? Uh, what other factors were going on? Was there a suicide um, note left? Uh, were drugs found on the body, if you will, or nearby? Any kind of drugs found. 
And likewise, one contributor to uncertainty that we don't even see on this chart is alcohol. Because many deaths involve a combination of alcohol and either prescription drugs or street drugs, where people are basically drinking and drugging themselves to numb the pain, sometimes to numb the physical pain. Now, this leads us into the question of why is correlation so very dangerous if you misuse it? Well, there's an old phrase, a mathematician recognizes it, and I've taught it to analysts for much of my 60-year my career. Correlation is not cause. Simply because event A happens a little bit before event B doesn't mean that A caused B. But there is, a, there is something else that a lot of politicians never hear. Without correlation, without some association that you see between event A and event B, there is no cause and effect. So if you have data that don't show an association between, let us say, prescribing and bad outcomes, notably either hospitalizations or uh, opioid-related mortality, if you don't have data that conclusively show that relationship, then you don't have a relationship, period. But that gets omitted from many of the memes and, and assertions that anti-opioid zealots, and I do use that term advisedly because it applies, opioid zealots don't want to hear it, don't want to take the chance that the zealots are going to catch them in any kind of an error. So they don't want to prescribe because even though they know there is no correlation, even though they have seen it confirmed in their own practices, there's somebody on a medical board that is, that is basically not a doctor, because a lot of medical boards have representatives of the public on them too. Someone who is a politician or the political appointee of a politician will say, yeah, well, th this, this doctor prescribed a huge volume of opioids. That means he has to be guilty. And the result of that is that doctors get railroaded. Now, you mentioned another generality. Repeat it for us so that we can, uh, can uh, respond to it, uh, Jay. I'm sure it was attribution. And you alluded to a bit when you talked about assigning, where when Dr. Nadeau gave the analogy of a patient who may alternate between illicit substances and prescription substances, and you mentioned it about the attribution factors where, quote, right. is there alcohol involved? Is there a prescription, whether that's irrelevant or not? Is there a suicide note? And I think that's very important to mention because this linear checkbox system of attributing often leads to cognitive error because you're making baseline assumptions on the attribution of death based on the presence or absence of particular factors without taking a more in-depth understanding of that. And I think that's something you both can allude to a bit further. Absolutely. Let me, let me add something to that because it's interesting from other research that, that Steve and I have done. There was a study done uh, of the Veterans Administration. Um, the, primary edit, uh, the primary author was Oliva, I believe. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing her name correctly. They took a look at a year of data and on uh, suicides and, depend and I think dependency. I'm not sure which one it was. Um, back in 2010 to 2011, and they built a predictive model that says, if we see certain factors, how, how uh, risky is it 
or how much risk, how much likelihood is there that if we see certain factors and they name something like 15 of them, uh, that somebody that we have treated with a, an opioid or even without an opioid in 2010 will have a serious um, occurrence of either an overdose-related mortality, uh, opioid misuse in the year following. Now, here's the thing that's a real bottom line on this. When they looked at this data, and in they looked at the highest risk um, population, a thousand out of something over a million uh, patients that were that were tracked in the VA system. It turns out that factors that have nothing to do with medical treatment were two to four times more important than factors relating to past medical treatment in predicting the outcomes when they were bad outcomes in 2011. Now that's confirming to us that the prescription of opioids and the duration of prescription and the doses prescribed are much less important than a past history of mental health issues, clinical depression, substance use disorder, and, the, and vets have a lot of them because vets are, under, are often very traumatized individuals who've been through a lot of bad news. People coming out of the sandbox, uh, which is to say coming out of the Middle East, uh, very frequently have uh, drug use issues. Um, not because they're bad people, because they've been stressed to the breaking point or wounded or both. So what we're finding out is that there's no real correlation between exposure to a medical opioid and a bad outcome downstream. A previous history of problems with, with behavioral health, problems with addiction uh, from any source, not medical necessarily, problems with depression is much more indicative of someone who needs to be monitored more closely than anything having to do with their past history in medical in the medical sense. And that's another point that Steve and I have made. One of the things that clinicians often, I won't say often, sometimes do not do well is they do not profile their patients for um, depression and anxiety, and they, and they are told that they really shouldn't treat uh, depression with benzodiazepine drugs. And the benzos are, are uh, moderators for both depression and, and uh, uh, anxiety. But when you don't do that, when you don't treat with the best you have, you expose the patient to a significant risk of downstream bad news outcomes because you can't treat effectively unless you're treating the whole person. And that means you need to understand where their, their, uh, their mood is, where their affect is, generally whether they're able to process and, and, and appropriately moderate their, their own care, if you will. So there are lots of interacting factors here. We don't want to misrepresent that in any way. And the interacting factors are such that we know with absolute certainty that doctors prescribing to their patients didn't make the U.S. opioid crisis. We also know that the DEA knows that. And that should become a basis for challenging and overturning convictions of clinicians who have been accused 
and who have often been coerced into settling charges having to do with practicing uh, outside the bounds of, of usual and normal medicine or uh, overprescribing. Overprescribing did not create the U.S. opioid crisis, not even close. Steve, you want to add? I'm going to very briefly amplify on three points. So, so one is to speak specifically to the, the question that Jay raised um, that's really reflected by the study of Bolivar, which by the way was a large population. Clearly, the results can be But what you really found, colleagues, is that people who were dying of overdose suicides or suicide attempts. Or people who mental health conditions, opioids, as a addition to the psychiatric disorder, and so the study that opioid dosage made a very small contribution to the probability of Led to 
war, which continues today and seems to solve the whole crisis, particularly by the supply smoking gun, if you will, for uh, other broadcasts if Jay wants to invite us. Um, well, let's do this. Let's let's touch on the uh, notion of liability and particularly DEA culpability. Uh, after we've discussed a little bit more on the statistics itself, I think it's very important for the listening audience to get a deep grasp of the numbers and how they're manipulated. Uh, 
for many who may be watching this for the first time, this graph may seem exceedingly complex. They may be used to looking at a simple graph that correlates prescription opioids and opioid overdose deaths. And in those numbers, as you guys know, they aggregate a lot of those mortality numbers in ways that give off a certain impression that may or may not be true. And that has created this persistence in a misperception on attributing, as we discussed earlier, falsely prescription opioids with overdose rates. So I want you guys to talk a little bit about how data gets manipulated. Are there statistical methods by which they manipulate the data or are they manipulating the inputs themselves as they formulate a preconceived outcome? Talk a little bit about how these numbers are manipulated to give a preconceived outcome. Okay, here's a, um, here's a thought. If you take all of the data from individual states and you lump it all together and you say, okay, um, as a function of um, the amount that is prescribed to the state population, that's to say prescriptions per 100,000, is there a relationship between the amount that's prescribed and the number of deaths in that state that are attributed to narcotics? And that, part, that exercise has been done. It's been done multiple times by multiple people. I'm one of them. You look state by state, and what you realize is that if you plot that data, 50 points, that's the 50 U.S. states, the overdose rate, excuse me, the overdose mortality rate versus the, uh, the sales of, of opioids in that state, you'll get a pattern that looks like a shotgun blast on the barn door. It doesn't have a trend line in it, or if the trend line is there, it's flat. What it means is that if opioids as prescribed were really going to be uh, accredited as a major driver of the opioid crisis, we should see higher overdose rates in states that have higher prescription rates, but we don't. And that factor is religiously excluded from all discussions of this issue by the CDC. It's cherry picking. Again, I've mentioned um, uh, Larry Aubrey and B. B. Thomas Carr. They did an excellent job going state by state to find out what was the relationship state by state and year by year between opioid sales versus hospitalizations. And, and, and here's what they found out. From 2010 to 2019, prescribing dropped off from roughly uh, a morphine milligram equivalent per 100,000 of, of almost 800 uh, in thousands. That's to see, other than, I'll get this right. The green curve, let's focus there. MME per capita is the, is the amount that was, was prescribed and sold. From 2010 to 2019, it dropped by 55%. But the total overdose deaths rise from roughly 38,000 to well over 70,000, and they keep on going. That's the TOD line. That's the, that's the, the TOD line, right. 
and admissions rise in, and then flatten off. There is some flattening in the period of 2018 to 2019, but it's it's temporary. It, it they go up after that. We have the data to show that. They that Aubrey and Carr did one more thing that was fascinating. They plotted this data differently to show what is the curve state by state between the MME sold versus deaths in that state from opioid related causes. And what they found out was states that have higher levels of prescribing have lower levels of deaths. The curve is literally reversed. MME per capita has a, has a downward to the right shape. But if you had a different uh, axis there and you were plotting um, the, the level of prescribing on the horizontal um, axis versus the uh, opioid related admissions and deaths, the more you prescribe, the less death there is. That result, I might add, uh, also parallels and reinforces the findings of Hauriot, uh, of uh, Jalal and his colleagues. They found the same thing because they did the same kind of analysis with, with sort, uh, data from a different source. So what this chart tells us is not only is there no relationship, there's no model. There's no mathematics that can explain that green curve versus the top level red curve. You can't, you cannot assume that opioids are the source of our opioid crisis and get these results. You can't do it. It doesn't happen. It's that clear. But this is something that the CDC and many other writers that are profoundly anti-opioid in their orientation absolutely refuse to embrace and, and deal with. They would rather ignore it. And this is this is an evidence that I think, frankly, is fraud. I think it's fraud on the part of the CDC, and it's fraud basically because of the political aspect of this. And and Steve spoke to that very briefly. I hope that's responsive to your to your concern, uh, Jay. Doctor yeah, Nadeau, can we go back to the Jalal uh, all graphs? Got it. Or the 
possible. Very interesting. Can I add a, a footnote, please, to uh, Steve? Um, there are analysts in this business who look at these curves and other, uh, other related data. And what they tell us is that the DEA is responsible 
for creating the drug crisis. Because the DEA falsely believed that supply was the issue and went after it. And in the process, they drove people into the streets. It's what we call a perfect storm of policy misdirection. One of those writing in this field is a fellow by the name of Jeffrey Singer. He's with the Cato Institute. He's done some brilliant work in studying the relationship between law enforcement and um, bad outcomes in, in the opioid crisis. And his work is worth, is worth uh, reviewing. Sometime maybe we will. Bottom line, what all of this data adds up to, just as Steve has spoken to, is the DEA is the problem, not the solution. And the CDC has made the problem worse by fraudulently misrepresenting cause and effect and knowing that they did it when they did it. The CDC needs to be removed from all future policymaking roles in the development of, of clinical practice standards for uh, the management of pain. They have clearly demonstrated that they are politically biased and basically incompetent to do the right thing. I'm going to have to depart the fix pretty quick, guys. Uh, are we at a point where we can wrap this up? Yeah, let me ask uh, final questions for both of you, just about a minute each, and then we can wrap this up. Um, you guys provided uh, significant information that I hope uh, the listening audience can learn from and implement their own uh, experiences with to understand why they're being treated the way they are if they're patients and why they're making decisions as they are if they're in the healthcare field. What is the general context of this paper and to analyze all of these numbers? Can you talk a little bit about the Federal Register and what you guys hope to gain out of presenting this data to the public? You want that one, Steve?
listen, don't fret it. We're not losing anything. Opioids are effective, so what do we care? Why don't you do it? May I um, uh, speak specifically to the Federal Register question that, that uh, Jay posed? There is now a request for comments in the Federal Register concerning the proposed opioid production quotas for next year. Actually, proposed quotas for all of the scheduled drugs that DEA has oversight on and legislative authority to control. Steve and I originally started with a comment to that um, uh, request for comments for the DEA when we wrote the paper that is, uh, has generated the, the uh, discussion we've just had. Basically, what we are saying to the DEA is that the entire premise of your production quota proposal is flat wrong. We need to greatly expand the availability of opioids because we are destroying the lives of patients and clinicians by an artificial and scientifically unjustified contraction of supply. The whole premise that by contracting supply you will help people is flat out wrong. There's no science for it. There's no ethics behind it. It's got to be stopped. Now, I'm being very emphatic, but I will tell you that there are literally hundreds of thousands of people out there who have been damaged by these policies. They want to see the DEA abolished. And I have to say, I have some sympathy for them because DEA has been misrepresenting this crisis for years. And they have consistently, year by year, failed in their mission. So we need to consider whether or not the actual removal of the DEA might be part of the legislative agenda. So on that note, Dr. Lawhorn, Dr. Nadeau, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it and look forward to carrying the conversation forward.